You're listening to the Celestial Citizen Podcast, and I'm your host, Britt Duffy Adkins. Celestial Citizen is a platform for promoting a more equitable and just vision of planetary settlement beyond Earth. This podcast seeks to provide an opportunity for conversation about how to be a better interplanetary citizen and responsible steward of Earth and the cosmos by engaging the global public, providing greater access to the space industry, and amplifying a more diverse set of voices, progress in space can equate to progress on Earth. We who are bursting with stardust can become celestial citizens. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with Madhu Thongavelu about the space architecture and infrastructure that will support Artemis mission objectives and a sustained presence on the moon. It's a great idea to put a woman and a man on the moon. That's spectacular. Madhu and I will also discuss how those plans might feed into future cities on the moon and eventually, my favorite, Mars. That is about humanities. And we, we should cherish that for the rest of our lives. If you've ever wondered about how humans might live and work someday on the moon, or what the field of space architecture is really all about, then you will love today's conversation. My guest on the show is a lecturer of both astronautical engineering and architecture at the University of Southern California. Madhu leads the Graduate Space Concepts Synthesis Studio, of which I was lucky to be a part of this past fall. Madhu also holds degrees in both engineering and architecture, and has contributed extensively to the areas of architectural design synthesis, space architecture, space systems engineering, and lunar-based design. And we're so pleased to have you joining Celestial Citizen Podcast. Thanks for being here today, Madhu. Thank you for the introduction. I should have mentioned to you that I'm also very active in the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics, and we just finished our pre-Christmas space architecture program in which we featured a large number of space architects from around the globe. And for the benefit of our listeners, how does one get involved with AIAA? Well, the first thing to do is Google spacearchitect.org, one word. You'll pull up some of the seminal works in our field that deals with a variety of subjects and uh, some of the things you mentioned Cosmos, Celestial Citizen, these are all part of space architecture. Okay, so we've got a lot of questions for you today, Madhu, so let's go ahead and dive right in. For the benefit of our listeners, can you please explain exactly what space architecture is and why it is such an exciting field at the moment? Space architecture is about building habitats in space and on extraterrestrial surfaces to keep us safe and secure in the harsh environment, and also to design such habitats so that we are productive in the things we do in outer space and on extraterrestrial surfaces. And that is the primary focus of architects in space architecture. But Brett, 
I'm sure you were exposed to the engineering side a little bit more. So the class that you sat in deals with the engineering as much as with design. I should be asking you <laughs> how you felt going through that ride last fall. I think for me, coming from a design and architecture planning background versus engineering, it was certainly a, <laughs> a bit of a, a steep learning curve. But that being said, I just... I think there's just such a special overlap between architecture and engineering that really is able to highlight the special qualities of both. And of course, Celestial Citizen is looking to add in that third element, which of course is more focused on sort of the social issues and considerations, planning out the human factors. So I think it's very important to have this multidisciplinary approach to these topics in space and, you know, humanity's future off Earth. Yeah, it was an excellent class. I think anybody who's able to take it, you know, is very fortunate. One of the things that we learned very quickly in like designing space missions, particularly for humans, is that it is not the domain of one discipline. There are experts who know more about it in every single aspect of it and then, mm -hmm. and then a classical uh, professor would. So uh, you probably appreciated the fact that I brought in some visiting lecturers who kind of uh, shed light on the things they do. It should be very clear that, you know, it's a combined effort. Mm -hmm. So that kind of discussion weaves a much richer form of education than we are able to offer in the narrow curriculums of each partition subject that usually universities do. Such a great observation. And, and I think you made this point, you know, a little bit earlier as well here, but it's really not just about surviving space, right? It's about learning how to thrive in space as well. And I think that's absolutely right. You know, it just has to be more of a interdisciplinary approach in order to make that happen. And I'm curious, Madhu, how did you become involved with the field of space architecture in the first place? You know, did you always know that you wanted to work in the space industry or did you sort of stumble upon it? And kind of grew up with it because uh, when we were kids, this is the time India was just starting their space program. And we literally grew up <laughs> in the city, around the beach city, where they put up their first launch station. I remember the director of the launch facility would call my dad very early in the morning when they would have a sounding rocket going off. <laughs> We'd all walk up on the terrace watch these, you know, the Nike Apache rockets. It was quite delightful, spectacular and early in the morning, you know. So your interest in space started at a very young age then. That is very correct. I think the U.S. space program did more for us in India because uh, they used to, of course, all, all countries have their embassies and then they have the consulates. And we would get a magazine called The Span, I don't think they produce it anymore. Most of the magazines sometimes would cover space activities. Oh, interesting. I still may have a scrapbook from my mom. She would cut newspaper clippings and put them all in the <laughs> scrapbook. So when you went into the field of architecture and, well, and you got your bachelor's of engineering first, correct? That's right. But when you did pursue your degree in architecture, did you know at that time that you were interested in going into space architecture or did that come later? At that time, we were really focused on professional 
works. And uh, I don't know, but if you go into an engineering program, the curriculum is very focused on a particular branch. In my case, it was civil engineering with a focus on dynamic structures. So um, at the end of the day, when you go through an engineering program, you know exactly what every discipline does. And more and more now, Brit, than ever, engineers have a very common understanding of the fundamentals in going to electrical engineering, mechanical, aerospace, or at USC, the program which is called astronautical engineering, which is very focused on space activities. We enhance the curriculum beyond the fundamentals to make it <laughs> what you experienced. Yeah, it was it was really an exciting opportunity for me to sort of sit between, you know, the two different schools at USC. So, Madhu, what makes architecture on the moon so different from architecture on Earth? And in that same vein, how do we think about architecture on the moon differently from architecture on Mars? The fundamentals of conception and design in architecture are quite similar, (laughs) whether you're on Earth, moon, Mars, or uh, elsewhere. But the environments are different, uh, Britt. On Earth, we are used to gravity, our atmosphere, our food, that is all part of planet Earth. But once you step outside of planet Earth, you go into space, um, (laughs) there is literally nothing there except the sun to save you. Then you go further out, and the first celestial body that you meet is our moon. Again, on the moon, you have a stark contrast of what is available to you. You have some gravity, not at all like planet Earth. Now we know there is water, so that can be very useful. But again, if you look at the soil, if you till and turn the soil, you'll realize very quickly that there is no nutrients to support growth of plants. And of course, there is no air So um, the moon is very different from Earth in that respect. Then if you want to go on a ride much longer, you'll hit Mars. Or if you go towards the sun, you'll come to our evil sister planet, which has more gravity than Mars. Um, We call it evil, but it's also the face of beauty. We call it Venus. On Mars, we have very, very fragile atmosphere and a little more gravity. And most of all, the Mars has an Earth-like day and night that perhaps is also helpful. But let me tell you, there's a lot we need to know before we get to it. A lot of work to be done, for sure. And all you aspiring space architects out there should definitely feel like there is no shortage of projects for you to uh, take part in. There is just a lot that we still need to learn, a lot that we still don't know. And I'm curious, how does space architecture directly serve the goals set forth by the Artemis missions? And the Artemis mission is framed to involve the entire globe. So it is definitely a celestial citizen project. Of course, there will always be push and pull from our allies as well as the globe of nation about what it is that we intend to do. And so the past two years since... Uh, Artemis was coined, we are looking at what can we do on the moon that will help us on our interplanetary voyages to go to Mars and see if we can settle it, 
and go beyond our orbital regime that we operate in now. Artemis involves, for the first time, a woman and a man being landed on the lunar surface. We expect that to be an example of how our species can move from cradle Earth to become part of the larger cosmos. And I think it's a very good first step because, as you know, if we have any intention at all, uh, truthfully, to become a spacefaring species, we don't know how to do that without a woman and a man and then expanding families. And so it is a primary condition to think about expanding our civilization that a woman and a man go together to explore and start the process of settlement. And, you know, of course, so many of us in the space industry are very excited about the Artemis missions. But I'm curious, given the change in administration, do you think we will still be able to hit a 2024 target for landing the next humans on the moon? Or do you envision that this will be delayed? Yeah, Brent, you know, I'm, I'm looking at the Apollo program as an example. You know, when we started the program soon after Russia put the first man into orbit, there was a rapid succession of flights to get the data back to make sure we could do this in under 10 years. We were able to do that from scratch. I mean, we did not have such an infrastructure. But today, we have a lot of data back, engineering data back, on how we can conduct such a mission. Uh, So a compression in time frame is not only possible, but it's doable provided we focus on it with the intensity, or I would say with 10% of the intensity that went into mm-hmm. Apollo. Because if you read about how the Apollo program was done, parents had to stay away from their children sometimes to get the job done. But it all worked out very, very well. And I don't see the need for that kind of intensity. Still, we need to be focused because right now, there's a push and pull from different constituents about why we do something and what they want to get done and so on. But uh, if we can align it, it's very easily doable. And I think 2024 is still a good goal. And do you think, you know, because the Apollo missions had just an astounding budget to achieve their goals, and the budget that NASA is working with today is nowhere close to that of Apollo, So I'm curious if you think the collaborations and partnerships with commercial space companies will fill that gap in us being able to achieve these goals. Yes, it surely does. The private space industry, and, you know, we are sitting right here in the town where it's happening, or at least in the region where it's happening, has clearly proven that access to space can be achieved with revolutionary means. We should all be happy to be witness to these kinds of technological advances, Brit. I think the private space industry is not only here to stay, but they've taken the lead in these missions. And that is absolutely delightful to see because there's a lot of discussion about why certain nations do what they do. Um, In a command economy, you can drive people and keep to schedules, but it's a lot harder where we have different voices. They all cheer, but they all want different results out of a project. But private space, it's a homegrown thing because nowhere else in the world do you see this kind of action from a bunch of people who have a vision. You know, I think they are going to take us very, very fast. 
And here in the U.S., the one small step to protect human heritage in Space Act became a law on the last day of 2020. How does that potentially set a precedent for future space architectures, say, the very first lunar base? Will that likely be considered protected lunar heritage? And what impact does this U.S. law now have on other emerging space agencies? I think it's a very interesting question. And we have, we have thought about this for, for many, many years. You know, the idea that you make and build these things, and for most part, in fact, most of these missions from the past 20 years or so, burn up after the mission is completed. The only thing that is left with us are the engineering mock-ups and the artifacts that sit in the Smithsonian. And as you know, it's one of the most visited museums anywhere in the world. People enjoy this. Now, what could be more important than a civilization or the species preserving its common heritage in an arena that is very new? If you look at the history of our species, we cherish our history and our culture wherever they are. And for the first time, thanks to people like Michelle Hanlon, Australia, Alice Gorman, there are a few others who are promoting this push and that we should take care of our heritage in space. And again, not a national heritage, it's a species heritage. Right. It is humans taking a first step outside of their comfort zone, outside of cradle earth. It's critical we preserve it. In our studio, we talked a little bit about it. The studio before, we talked quite a lot about it. And I was so thankful that Michelle Hanlon came to class and talked to this concept of preserving our species heritage in space, and particularly extraterrestrial space. That's where, where the bootprints are. I think it's very important that we preserve it because right now, many nations are planning to conduct missions on the moon. And it's very possible these kinds of artifacts can get run over and we may not have anything to show for. Not to mention that even the environment will erase it. So we need to preserve it for all posterity. And I think that's such an important point and certainly something that is a core component of Celestial Citizens' mission is this idea that, you know, we want to approach our future in space as one humanity, not necessarily, as you said, preserving any one particular nationality's heritage above any others. We really need to start thinking about this as a global humanity first and eventually, you know, a celestial humanity as well in the future. So I certainly couldn't agree with you anymore on that. When do you think we'll start to see the beginnings of a lunar or Martian city? SpaceX has suggested a very condensed time frame of having a city on Mars by 2050, you know, which feels quite bullish. But others think that we might still be 100 years out. What is the time frame that you envision? Well, NASA thinks that our first human expeditions to Mars could happen in the 2030s. It's too early to cast any kind of concrete ideas on when things like that might happen. But I can tell you that the race of technology is not waiting for anybody. In the next 10, 20 years, you'll see a ramping up of propulsion technologies that allow us to go much, much faster to 
various uh, celestial destinations. All that will weigh in by even the 2030s. So we can expect a kind of a acceleration. It's happening now with the starship and so on, where you're really changing the paradigm of how rockets are built, serviced, and what they are able to carry up into orbit. These are areas for space architects to be thinking about as they put the blocks together, how we go about building a spacefaring civilization. What is the single greatest hurdle in your mind to making a lunar city or a Martian city happen? You know, is there something that really stands out to you as potentially keeping us from becoming an interplanetary species? Our government? No, just kidding. <laughs> I think um, you know, democracies, at least the way I read them, take a long time to align up, make a choice. My professor, uh, Fior, would tell me, you know, whatever you do, you should do this with all your heart or don't do it. Um, for some of us who've been watching how the space program has evolved over the years, there are various constituencies, not only among the various disciplines who are interested in getting back data and so on, but within the way we organize our efforts fall into politics of constituencies. That is, there are people who want jobs in their district, and then the way you share the resources to make it happen, all those can hamper our directive, you know. I'm happy to say that the last four years, we saw remarkable developments, really remarkable developments in honing a focus. All of us are involved in that kind of activity, and I'm happy to say that if we keep up that kind of momentum, magical things will happen very soon. And of course, we are all optimists, we are all eternal optimists, but we are also pragmatists, and we know that in order to be able to do some of the things like this, we need to have a rapid succession, what do you call a cadence, in the way we fly these missions, because we need a lot of hard data back before we can put brave people and their families, set them off on expeditions to Mars and beyond. Frankly, when I look at our solar system, the beautiful places to visit lie beyond the asteroid belt. And I don't know if you've watched Eric Wernquist's video that literally tells you the beauty lies in places like Titan and the clouds of Neptune. At this current time in my thinking, seeing these places and coming back is more important than hoping to settle, which may be in a much longer time frame. I think that's a great point. Frank White's book, The Overview Effect, is a favorite of mine. And I'm curious if you view the overview effect as essentially the next evolution of the age-old tradition of, you know, gazing at the night sky, just as the ancient civilizations did prior. And perhaps for the benefit of our listeners, you could also explain just a little bit about the overview effect for those who don't know. When we were at doing the first session of the International Space University is when Frank White came to our lecture hall and talked about the overview effect for the first time. What happened is that once we put people into orbit and they came back, the scientists realized that something had made them different. And then anthropologists and so on studied this for a while. There are papers that came out on the subject way before Frank coined the term overview effect. 
And it all talks to the same thing, that when people go out into space, they don't see nations anymore, and they don't see all petty quarrels anymore. It's one beautiful object. And the thing that shocks them the most is how thin that layer is of the atmosphere and the land mass and the ocean compared to the size of the globe. It is in that we do all our activities, good and bad. And sometimes we think we do too much bad. And I also think we respond to the other term, which is by James Lovelock, who talks about the Gaia hypothesis. Hey, listen, guys, you don't have to take care of planet Earth. If you don't take care of yourself, planet Earth will do things uh, to you that you won't like very much. And that's why we call her Mother Earth. There is a sense of sentience, a sense of what life is. And when people go out and come up, come back, they get that into their DNA, I think. And that's what Overview is all about. And I think when more people go out and come back, it will definitely make a difference how we interact with the planet Earth. And in the interim, until more people have that opportunity to experience the overview effect, how important is the role of culture and spirituality in space activity? It's an area that is kind of new. Astronauts, when they go up, they do become deeply spiritual. It probably is the overwhelming effect the insignificance or the huge astonishment that comes to when you read directly with your eyes what is happening out there. During Apollo 8, a lunar orbit, the astronaut put his thumb out to the moon. They blocked out Earth with the thumb of their hand and they could not see Earth anymore. And they thought, gosh, you know, that is how big the universe is. And those kinds of attitudes bring to mind something beyond our narrow sense of logic and what we apply in the sciences and technology. Of course, they are very, very critical tools to keep us alive, to be able to appreciate the wonders of the universe. But what I call spirituality has very little to do with organized religion or liturgical practices. They are very important as well, coming from an old culture in Hindu philosophies. Liturgy is very, very important to bring you into that ambience that allows you to experience awe. So if you look at the scriptures, you really see a lot of things they mention are associated with the cosmos, how you are part of it. And as you mentioned up at the introduction, we are part of stardust and <laughs> there's no escaping that. And so obviously it's going to resonate with you at different levels. And what could be more exciting than a human living body and soul uh, flying out into space and interacting with it in a very direct manner? I think it's really interesting because, you know, there's this, as you said, there's a spirituality that goes along with this sense of wonder and awe as we think about the cosmos. I don't know if you've read Sasha Sagan's book, For Small Creatures Such As We, but it just does a really good job of explaining why culture and tradition is just so ingrained in the human species and why it's so important to us. And I think when we really take a step back and we just think about the spectacular and rare occasion that we even exist here today at all on this planet, it's really quite mind-blowing. 
So I think you're absolutely right. I think that the overview effect would be so critical for helping people to sort of have these different perspectives about their role on this planet and in the broader solar system and universe and just really allow people to perhaps move past some of their petty differences. It's not to diminish the very serious social issues that we find ourselves um, in the midst of today, but it's at least a starting point. And I think that that's really exciting. There is an organization called the Moon Village Association, BRIT. I'm the coordinator for North America for them. There is one project that's very pragmatic and practical that is going to be their first payload. And that's very simply flying a high-resolution camera to the surface of the moon and putting it in such a way that it's looking at planet Earth in very high detail, a synoptic view of planet Earth that everybody on Earth can watch in real time. Now, it's not a new idea. When Al Gore was vice president, he wanted a satellite to go up there to watch the Earth like so. We do that now. The defense organization keeps an eye on everything (laughs) that's flying out or coming back into Earth. But this is for civilian purposes. The idea that anybody who has access to a cell phone or a TV or anything visual can have a direct view of where we live. I think it's a spectacular concept that can change one's mind. So even if you don't go out, the next biggest thing you can do for you is have a live view of both the good and the bad things we do. You can see the Brazilian rainforest burning, (laughs) and then you can look at each other in leadership and say, hey, what the heck is going on? That kind of connection is critical as we become what I call a more aware species. We now have a term called space situational awareness. And also we look towards the sun and see when the sun is getting angry. And we say, watch out, get all your things in order because a solar storm is headed your way. We know that that's called space situational awareness. Now we are moving further out and we are becoming more solar system aware. We all of a sudden know huge chunks of rocks can be flying out at us from anywhere and we we have to watch out for them. And I'm sure there are creatures out there that go beyond this to galactically aware. They are in awe of the universe. So that leads me to my next question, which is, what is your opinion on life in the universe? It's teeming. (laughs) It's teeming. I think we are not sensitive enough to realize what's going on. We are probably babies, bawling and crying and making a lot of noise. I wouldn't call them the guardians, but I would call them the more mature civilizations are just not paying attention to us because they know it'll take some more time before responding. And, you know, it's a thought that's gone on in my mind for a while, Britt, and that is, why is the universe so quiet? Why is the universe so dark? Though we know that it takes only a few million years or a billion years for sentient life to form and the creatures like us to walk on Earth, why is it that we don't see 
all these people, as Fermi Paradox mentions, where are they, you know? How come they're not coming down here and shaking hands with us every other day? More importantly, why are they not helping us uh, when there are problems, you know? Right, right. And uh, so I think it's just a matter of growing up a neighborhood. And one thing we notice is that just looking at our industrial growth, industrial civilization in the past two or three hundred years, Let's look at it and say we used to be terribly polluting of our atmosphere in the 17th, 18th century. And then coal came along and iron came along. And then we became a knowledge-aware species. We suddenly realized, no, we cannot mess with planet Earth because, uh, you know, it's not good for you. Acid rain came along and killed our trees. And then we got even more smarter. And then uh, we started communicating with satellites. It's an interesting thought, you know, satellites send out a lot of spurious signals all over the universe. And then uh, we sent out messages uh, asking if anybody is out there. It's still heading towards Alpha Centauri and other places. And what you notice is in the past 40 or 50 years, we have become more quiet. We as a species have become more quiet in the way we use electromagnetic signals. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, we used to throw out this stuff all over the place. And I can still read papers from the 60s and the 70s when they said, oh, the satellites are going to be doing this and that. And this. Guess what? Fiber optics came along, and now we conduct more business with fiber quietly. And I think technology will move on ahead to find better ways of communication that make us even quieter. Well, and what I was going to say is, you know, the other thing we talked about in in the class at USC is this idea of also utilizing lunar lava tubes and living potentially underground. So in addition to being quiet, (laughs) are you saying, are you implying that we're we're also going to be underground and and so then therefore virtually undetectable? (laughs) Sure. I think the cosmos is teeming with sentience that we just need to learn to communicate more importantly than learn to communicate, is learn to be aware. We are going a long way towards that, I think, in the past 20, 30 years since the IPCC came along and told us all the devastations that we are causing and the irreparable damage we are causing on this very thin sheath, you know, that we call landforms and the atmosphere. We are able to do so much damage. So base architecture is important because it tells you more than anything else, the way we do things and the way we apply technologies is probably the cleanest methods. We take water, split it up into hydrogen and oxygen, and then put it back together again and produce power. And we use the same as fuel. So what could be cleaner than water producing power and going back to water? Now, if you look at Elon Musk's projects, he's using methane as a fuel. And what do you do that? You pull out the terrible carbon dioxide that we put in there uh, over the past few hundred years and suck it all up (laughs) and make it into fuel. We have what we call carbon neutral projects. So a lot of things we do in space and space architecture bode well for humanity. I think that's absolutely a great reminder and certainly a rallying cry for aspiring space architects to go out there and get their architecture and engineering background so they can be a part of this conversation as well. 
education is all about that, isn't it? I mean, making people aware, making people more sensitive and more refined. I think refined is the term to say that. Yeah, and I think that's a big part of why Celestial Citizen Podcast came to be. These are super interesting topics and they're relevant to every human on earth. And I think the more that we can have these conversations and make the discussion more open and public, the more excited and enthusiastic I think we're all going to be about what lies ahead in the future. Our government, um, for all the what's and all the aches they go through, have the right constitutional spirit, what it means to be free and the responsibilities that come with it. E pluribus unum is something that I always end many of my articles with. And it really truly means that. And there's another term called cosmopolitanism, a meaning that people can be different in very, very different ways, but it's still absolutely delightful to see how different we are, though we carry the same DNA. So um, I think Space activity is very, very interesting from that point of view. And one thing that I may not have mentioned um, is that when I was in school, my mentor told me you can spend a lot of time using logical processes and putting blocks together, but you can never do what can come out of a poem or a song uh, by doing that. The idea precedes the process. It is pure inspiration. You know, it is a human quality, imagination and creativity. You know, there's a lot of talk about artificial intelligence and so on. I very, very much doubt it because I'm hooked into all these creative people, artists, poets, painters. They do, one moment you're thinking, oh, this is logical, this is logical. Suddenly they make a step and you go like, oh, how do they do that? It has absolutely no basis in logic. Uh, that is about humanities and the humanity, and uh, we <laughs> we should cherish that for the rest of our lives. I agree. It's it's all the differences for sure that collectively I think come together for a really exciting future. All right, Madhu, I'm going to take this in a slightly different direction here, a little lightning round game of this or that. <laughs> so I will give you two options, and you can only pick one. No explanations, no commentary. So just go with your gut. Are you ready? Okay. All right. Architecture or engineering? Architecture. Moon or Mars? Moon. Apollo or Artemis? Artemis. Neil Armstrong or Buzz Aldrin? Oh, you, you, you <laughs> did. I, I knew I was going to put you on the spot with that one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and Neil was very reserved, so I will go with Buzz. <laughs> Okay. SpaceX or Blue Origin? Oh, SpaceX is so close to us here and uh, my students all work. In fact, they work both Blue Origin and SpaceX. But right now, I'm really wanting to see Starship do something. Star Wars or Star Trek? I like Star Wars better. Baby Yoda or Old Yoda? (laughs) I like Old Yoda better. (laughs) The Martian or Interstellar? Uh, well, 
you know, the problem with interstellar was uh, closely associated with 2001 in many ways. It didn't really uh, go with with much. But I like Andy Weir and the way he, uh, human astronautics, uh, a very human thing, you know. <laughs> what could be more human thing than crap, right? <laughs> 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 That's and, very true. Uh, I like the way uh, Ridley Scott uh, did that movie. As you know, a screenplay is very different from how you write a book. And so I thought he did very well with that. I like the Martian story better, though it's full of fallacies. And again, uh, narrative, the way we say a story to the public is far, far more important than critical observations in the sciences and the technologies. Because in our pursuit of human space flight, if you cannot bring the public along with you, you don't have a mission. Uh, right now, I worry about Artemis in the sense, it's a great idea to put a woman and a man on the moon. That's spectacular. And the first time I heard it was from Steve Durst, who sent me a note a couple of years ago and said, when are we going to put a woman on the moon? <laughs> and I go like, whoa, I didn't think about that, you know. But anyway, um, you know, um, those things are important. So telling a story, if you tell somebody, oh, we want to go to the moon to make water to go to Mars, you're going to like, for what? What are you going to do that for? You know, there is a, a inspirational person by the name of Simon Sinek, he is the mentor for a lot of people who, in their ripe old age, wonder, what did I do the wrong? <laughs> and he, say, he says that the most important thing in life is to know why you are doing what you are doing. If you get the why you are doing what you are doing right, oh, the rest of it is easy. It's very easy. And you see many corporations now following Simon Sinek's advice, study, get into your head exactly why you are doing what you're doing. And that'll charge you, that'll power you up. Oh, wow. Yeah, words to live by. I like that. Well, I think that's all the time that we have for today, unfortunately. Thank you so much, Madhu, for joining Celestial Citizen Podcast today. This has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. And I just know it's going to go and and inspire a whole new crop of space architects and enthusiasts. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Britt. I hope you send uh, more participants to our studio in the fall. (laughs) Absolutely. Three, two, one. We have liftoff. And to all you listeners out there, thank you so much for tuning into this episode of Celestial Citizen Podcast. This episode would not be possible without the terrific work of this show's editor, Victor Figueroa. Thank you, Victor. Also, a very special thank you to Graham Clark, who created the amazing intro and outro music for this podcast. If you're interested in learning more about Celestial Citizen, and I hope you are, 
then check out celestialcitizen.com. You can also follow along on Twitter at Celestial Citizen and Instagram at The Celestial Citizen. And of course, be sure to sign up for the Celestial Citizen newsletter on Substack. You can find the link on our website. A major component of Celestial Citizen is feedback and public participation. We really want to hear what you have to say. So let us know what you think about humanity's future in space and what it should look like. Please share your voice and your unique perspective on social media. Or if you prefer, all of the Celestial Citizen articles can also be found on Medium. So drop a comment and join the conversation. If you love today's podcast, please have your friends and family subscribe on whatever device or platform you listen to podcasts on and leave a stellar, see what I did there, review so others can get hooked as well. That's all for now, Celestial Citizens. I'll be back next week for another episode. In the meantime, don't be afraid to take up space. <laughs>